There are five times more hires made through Indeed.com than any other job site. Imagine a lottery that had five times more winners. A Sunday with five times more touchdowns. When you're hiring, it makes five times more sense to use Indeed. Right now, we're giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your $50 credit at Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. My guest today is Jordan Harbinger. He's the co-founder of The Art of Charm and host of The Art of Charm podcast. He is the former Wall Street attorney who has spent several years abroad in Europe and developing world. He speaks five languages and worked for various governments and NGOs overseas. He's even been kidnapped twice. His ability to talk himself into or out of any scenario is what's kept him alive. And today he's sharing some of those skills with us on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, I know you talk about your podcast and your business being for men and women. But it mostly seems like men are the ones that are participating. Why do guys need more charm than women? You know, it's interesting. And I think the the reason that our audience is more male-dominated is because we started off being a show specifically for men. So our audience is still 86% men. And according to the surveys, which, uh, you know, take it or leave it on that, it might even be more men. It's just that women are typically better at responding to things, so it could be skewed even a little bit. Um, But I think the reason is partly because when guys think about these types of problems that they're having with networking, relationship development, and things like that, they view it as something that can probably be fixed with a system, whereas I think a lot of other people, men and women included, look at relationships as something they're either already good at or they're as good at it as they're going to be. But frankly, I think one of the sort of non-PC reasons is because I think women are just generally better at creating alliances because they're biologically evolved to be better at that than men are in general. And so this topic tends to be more very interesting to both men and women but more of a need for men versus a curiosity for women. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. It, you know, I did your podcast. You, you were uh, nice enough to have me on about the book, and it's interesting. I actually got a lot of comments back from women, not from men. I did get some men, but I got more back from women than I did with men uh, when I was on your podcast, So I, for whatever that's worth. But l- let me also ask you about seduction and selling. Because you're you're teaching people to be seductive and and to seduce, isn't it? Isn't the same as selling? I don't know. I mean, we're not really like a seduction type of company or show. I think we're more of an influence company. We don't really focus on dating, so the seduction label might be a little bit misleading, especially because seduction has a negative connotation as well. So whereas we're focused mostly on relationship development and the value add aspect of it, if you're if we want to lump that in with seduction, which I think might be a mistake, but let's for the case of not arguing over semantics, mm-hmm. let's lump them together. I would say yeah, they're largely the same. Because if you're looking at the art of charm approach, which is 
help other people as much as you can, connect other people with each other that can, that probably can help each other, deliver value without keeping score, ditching your agenda as far as relationships are concerned, being as authentic as possible. I don't know if it's the same thing as selling, but it's got to have 90% overlap because somebody who's a good salesperson doesn't figure out tips and tricks to manipulate people into buying things. They figure out ways to get the prospect to like and trust them so that even and that even if that means saying, look, Jeff, I know you were looking at this, but I don't think my company is a good fit for you. I'm going to point you towards a competitor because it's just going to be a better fit for you. That builds a lot of trust, and it's not done as a tactic. It's done when it actually needs to get done because it serves your needs better. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that's good advice whether you're selling something or you're, or you're seducing someone. I, I look at seduction as kind of a good term. I know you mentioned it's kind of a bad term. Why would you, why would you consider it kind of a bad term? I think the connotation that seduction has is a little bit black hat. And I think also it's been polluted by the weirdo, like pickup artist guys that are yeah. lurking around the internet. Sure. So I think it has that. But I think there's the, the, and if you look it up in the dictionary, it can be to lead somebody astray. So if we're not talking about leading somebody astray, but we're leading them towards something that's going to be good for them. Or mutually beneficial. About, or mutually beneficial. Mutually, yeah. yeah. Or, or honestly, beneficial to them even at your own expense sometimes, especially right. in the case of actual sales. Because I know a lot of the people that are really successful salesmen that I know personally, they will do things like say, listen, our machine or our software or our program or our service isn't going to be the best fit for you right now because you're going to be a small fish in our big pond yeah. or we can't handle the volume that you have or whatever. And they'll make an intro to a colleague that they technically are nose-to-nose competitors with. But the, the point is that might cost them the sale, but it keeps them this long-term relationship where that person says, look, this guy could have taken an easy 10 grand and instead he gave it to somebody who he's at war with in business because it was better for me. That's a, that's a bold move that takes a lot of integrity. And I think we know integrity is rare enough that it should be prized. And so looking at it from a seduction angle might be like, okay, look, I hope he doesn't find out about this competitor who has a better fitting product. Let's get him a contract so that he can't back out. Right. That's more like the seduction that I'm kind of imagining when I, when people use that word. Uh, oh, that's a great distinction. If you find it's rare that people actually tell the truth like that and, and actually do it for the benefit of the person across the table rather than themselves. I do. And this isn't just because I used to think, oh, it's just because the industry I'm in, you know, people hide behind things on the Internet. So it's easy for them to be scammy. But bear in mind, I used to work on Wall Street as an attorney. OK, not an industry known for integrity. But I've also been in a lot of other close up to a lot of other industries and a lot of other thought leaders and a lot of other influencers. And one of the things that constantly they tell me either on the show, on the Art of Charm or behind closed doors is that integrity and honesty are so rare that when you meet people who have it, even if they work for a company that competes with yours, you become fast friends because it's so rare that it, it just trust becomes the highest form of currency. And I started to take that to heart. And I love that. I love being able to sit around with a quote unquote competitor or somebody who's in a totally different industry and be like, this is a guy who's actually a friend of mine. That's not going to screw me over for a hundred bucks. Yeah, exactly. So I'm always curious about the journey of how you got there. 
because you you mentioned you were an attorney. I, I looked at that in your background, and and how did you get to this side? You know, this side of the aisle, so to speak. Sure. So when I was on Wall Street, I was working for a large real estate firm, and I got hired by this partner named Dave. And he was cool. I remember the interview being way less formal than all these other interviews that I'd been in. We were throwing the football around, and he was supposed to be my mentor because he was kind of the guy who signed my my contract, I guess. And you were an, and, in, an intern, as I recall, when I read through the background, right? You started yeah, as an intern. They, yeah. they call it a summer associate. So mm-hmm. basically, you're, you're high, the job is yours to lose, Yeah. right? It's the summer before you graduate, so you, you've got a year left of school. And they want to court you by whining and dining you so that in your last year of school, you've already got a job and, you know, you want that. And then they try to get you to come to work early and blah, blah, blah. This is 2006. So the market's super hot for all things financial services related. And Dave was really cool. And I, he, since he was supposed to be my mentor, I was really stoked because everyone's like, oh, Dave's the man. Dave's so cool. Dave makes more money than everybody else. He's the, you know, he's the guy you want to be when you're in this farm. You want to be the next Dave. So I was really excited. And then when I started actually working there, I took the job. When I started actually working there, uh, things were different. You know, the other summer associates were like, oh, yeah, I just went to see Blue Man Group when I was getting wine and dine and we went to Morton's. And, and this is with their mentor. And I'm thinking, I haven't seen Dave at all, <laughs> let alone gone to see Blue Man Group. I want to go see Blue Man Group. I want to go have, you know, lobster for lunch. The hell, I'm getting shafted. So we had an HR meeting with all the summer associates. And they said, how's your mentorship program going? And I said, I don't have one. Dave's never around. And that that wasn't kosher. So, by the way, not a great way to get ahead with the <laughs> yeah, boss. Compl- yeah, complaining a- about the boss right off the bat. Yeah, Not a good idea. Uh, but it didn't matter. Uh, but, yeah, pro tip, don't do it. And HR said, oh, okay, well, we'll try to see if we can if we can con- convince him to you know be a little bit more proactive. And I'm like, great, okay, cool. So the next uh, week or so, Dave shows up to the office first time i'd seen him uh since uh the first month i was there and and what funny anecdote the first month i was there i saw dave in an elevator and i saw him and the managing partner of the whole firm and the managing partner cracked a joke like uh-oh dave's here what to what do we owe the pleasure is there an emergency you know it's kind of a joke like hey you're never here what's the big occasion that you're showing up for and we had like an all hands meeting and that was why and I remember that because it was so bizarre. One day, shortly after that, I showed up at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night because I thought, look, I got this Manhattan office. The the finishings are made out of wood. I'm in the World Trade Center, World Financial Center, overlooking World Trade. I'm going to bring a girl up here, and I'm going to look like such a baller. You know, this is Mm going to be great. I'm going to get many points for this. And I showed up at 1 a.m. Yeah, yeah, sounds good, right? (laughs) Well, I show up at 1 a.m. I show up at 1 a.m. on a Saturday night. And everyone is there. It looks like Tuesday at 1 p.m. And I'm thinking, what the heck? So, of course, I got the hell out of there before anybody could give me any work. And on Monday, I asked a senior associate that I was cool with. I said, what was going on? Are we closing a deal? And he said, no, why? I said, well, I showed up at Saturday at 1 a.m. And everybody was here working. And he goes, man, we're always here on the weekend, at least till 1, at least the last few months. And I saw this ugly glimpse of my future. Right, as like this workhorse. Now, Dave, of course, was not there. Dave wasn't even there Tuesday at 2 p.m. So I asked Dave when the HR finally did coerce him to take me out for coffee. He said, All right, ask me anything. And he's, you know, clacking away in his Blackberry at Starbucks 
uh, which, for which I already thought, this is, how, you know, this is how you get fired at Starbucks. I said, how come <laughs> you are never in the office, but everybody says you make the most money of any partner? I mean, I thought it was all about billable hours. Do you just work from home a lot? And he was kind of incredulous, but he got a little bit of a smirk on his face. And he said, look, I don't necessarily work from home. I mean, here and there, but I'm out networking. I'm out building relationships. I'm out building these, these, for lack of a better word, partnerships yep. with clients. And so I'm more valuable on the golf course at the charity event. I mean, this is a guy from Brooklyn with a tan. So he knows something somebody does, that we don't. Um, and he's more valuable outside the office than he is billing off or, uh, hours inside the office. And that's huge because a partner on the Wall Street firm probably bills around a thousand bucks an hour, which means that whatever he's doing on the golf course is worth multiple thousands of dollars per hour to the firm. And that to me was just mind blowing that he could be out chatting with people or doing whatever it was he was doing and it would be worth that much money. So I knew from that point that I was not cut out. I have a great work ethic, but I was not cut out to be the guy who sleeps under his desk and works till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, six, seven days a week. I just, I just could never be that guy. Um, a lot of the people that were doing that were, were literally immigrants from other countries that had left their family behind and they had nothing here other than the prospect of bringing them over once they reached a certain level of prosperity in America. So that wasn't something I was keen on doing, right? The other thing was there were some super genius types that were just so damn smart and they seemed to get everything that we did at the law firm intuitively, whereas I could just, I was so far away and I was the fellow owner. So I thought it's only a matter of time until I get fired until I figured out Dave's quote unquote secret, which was that relationships are actually the strongest lever because Dave worked hard, but he didn't work as hard as some of the other partners uh, who were there till 3 a.m. And he was a sharp guy, but I don't think he was a genius. I think he just had the best people skills. So I saw that as my opportunity. If I can master these people skills, I will get to the top and I will be recession proof. I will be, um, I will be, I'll be able to write my own ticket. I will be able to do whatever I want. And sure, sure enough, um, to, to sort of put a bow on it, when the economy did hit the, the tank uh, and our firm was looking at going under, he left and walked in to another firm as a partner and quite possibly got a raise because he had a big book of business. And all those other partners that I knew in our department that were working until 3 a.m., six days a week, seven days a week, they, they're in what uh, I'll put in air quotes is called early retirement, sure. which means they're done. Yep. And no, and no future. So do you think those skills are mastered? You talked about that, the people skills. Are they mastered or inherited? They're mastered. And, and I know that a lot of people, I used to get a ton of email when I first started The Art of Charm that was like, oh, you know, you're either born with it or you're not. And it's, um, it couldn't be less true. Frankly, science now finally can show conclusively that, look, this is a nurture thing. It's very, very little to do with nature. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. But introvert doesn't mean antisocial. It just means that you need more more me time to really relax yeah. and regroup. But that has yeah. nothing to do with your ability to learn social skills or to be able to network and create relationships. It might have to do with your level of anxiety at the thought of doing so because you're not practiced like you could be but it has nothing to do with your natural ability. So what we do know is that social skills are by definition, very much by definition, a nurture, not a nature, not an inborn skill or trait, but a, a product of an environment or influences 
that create that early. And a lot of people like to point to apparent counterexamples like, no, my, you know, my brother and I were raised in the same house and he's social and I'm not. And if you really get granular, like I do at Art of Tron boot camps or on the phone or whatever with clients, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, so tell me about growing up. Well, my brother was always into sports and I was kind of more of a bookworm. Okay. Stop right there. Look in the mirror, man. Look in the mirror. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so your brother was on a bunch of sports teams with a bunch of guys. And then he was on co-ed teams with a bunch of guys and a bunch of girls, which made him popular in school, which made him have confidence. And meanwhile, you were in the chess club getting beat up by your brother's friends. This is nurture. This has nothing to do with your DNA. Right. And so you can always find the nurture element in there. And thankfully, what this also means is that you don't have to learn it as a kid. We know that adults can develop and build these skill sets. It might take longer. It might take more practice. You may have less opportunity because you're not in school anymore, but that's exactly what our programs and and our podcast is designed to get around. Yeah, and are you more of a – and when I think about your business, and I want to talk about your partners a little bit too, are you more of a podcast or are you more of a consulting firm? Um, It depends. I mean, frankly, you know, the show gets 2 million downloads a month. But our live training programs happen every single week in L.A., and there's 10-plus people in each one of those. And those are, those are nothing. You know, we're sold out six months in advance. So I would say it's a little bit of both. It started off as just a podcast. It was a hobby of mine. You, you, but but then let me it ask became, you a question. You weren't doing the podcast to make money. I mean, like my podcast, I do no. it because I like it, but I also make money. I have sponsors. and those. You're using it to help spread the message to bring more people in, right? Correct. Yeah. When I started the show in 2006 with AJ, it was me and him in the basement drinking gin and tonic before going out, talking about things like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, and relationship development. It's evolved over the last eight and a half years to be what it is now, which is something that explores all concepts of human behavior and interaction and and the occasional tangent as well. But it started, the reason we started our firm, at the boot camps, the live training program at the Art of Charm, the reason those started was because we started getting emails about six months, maybe 18 months, <laughs> memory fades, back when we started the show saying, can I learn from you in person? Right. And the first thing we said was, no, we're not. Yeah, we're, we're not, not doing coaches. that. Yeah. yeah, we're not doing we're, that. <laughs> so, and, and people were writing in and saying things like, no, no, you don't understand. I've, I've gone to every coach in this area and none of them have been able to do anything for me, but I've taken the free stuff that you're giving away on the show and I've gotten more results from that than I have from anything that I've gotten from these other people that I've paid. And we were like, well, okay, sure. Show up. And we eventually had some people say, look, I'll give you a five grand if I can stay with you for a week. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting experiment. Mm -hmm. So we did that. He got amazing results. He ended up coming back again a year later. And at that point, we were running these week-long programs that are residential where people stay in how this three you got a couple three story houses in Los Angeles. Our coaching staff lives there. We've got our studios and things in there. We've got our classrooms in there. People live in there. It's an immersion program, and there's just nothing else like it. And we realized that that was the business that was going to come out of it. When we started the show, I was still a law student. I had no intention of becoming some kind of you know what whatever I am now. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was an attorney, and yeah. that was all that was going to be. And this it's still, a hobby and it's still evolving for you. So, hey, let me take yeah. a quick break because I, I need to do that. You know what helps me uh, turn on the extra charm and charisma? It's my morning cup of Dunkin' Espresso. In 1950, the American entrepreneur William Rosenberg founded Dunkin' Donuts franchise 
that still keeps business owners running and charming today. I pick up Dunkin' Espresso every single morning. In fact, I pick up four of them when I leave in the morning. And all business with Jeffrey Hazlitt and America runs on Dunkin'. So let me ask you about your partners. You, you got two other partners in the business. Uh, it was AJ and um, Jonathan, right? Johnny, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, how, how did you guys other, meet? How did you um, meet? Yeah, sure. So AJ, I met through a mutual friend of mine when I first started discovering the networking lever, if you will, where it was like, oh my gosh, this is the thing I need to get good at. I met him and I started talking about this networking thing that I had sort of picked up over the summer. And our mutual friend said, oh, that doesn't work. You know, you just need to basically keep your head down and work hard um, and if you have rich parents, maybe you can get a network, but for guys like you and me, it's not going to work. And me and AJ looked at each other and we're like, eh, I don't really think we believe that let's test it. So we went out and I was making friends with the, the barman and the owner of the venue and things like that. And we started going out a lot and hanging out just casually. And it turned out, Oh my gosh, this stuff really works. And AJ was interested in learning it, uh, because he, wasn't this is a skill that he saw had great power and that he wasn't necessarily good at. And what I noticed from him was he had some sort of magical magnet in his pocket that women would like glide across the room and land in our area because he, well, I don't know what the heck was going on. Right. So I said, look, I'll teach you all this networking stuff that I've been working on reading about practicing, taking, taken to the to, to to the social arena and trying to master if you teach me what the heck you're doing and he goes oh i'm just observing body language and eye contact and things like that and i went what are you talking about eye contact you mean looking at people and he's like well there's nuances and i thought this is incredible i've got to learn this jedi stuff so the more we started talking about body language eye contact vocal tonality the way you sit stand walk and talk and interact with others and all the little jiu-jitsu and chess games that are being played in the social arena every day every day and by the way they're doing every single day the body semantics you know i used to play a game years ago with with salespeople. it would go to a cocktail party and i said watch let's play uh carpet bingo and they go what do you mean watch how many squares i can push this guy around in a room just using my body and literally at a cocktail party and watch how you can back people up or move people, and just by mirroring or by posturing your body, and that's just what this gentleman was talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he he was talking a lot about not just moving people around, but demonstrating power and social hierarchy, and think channel. He was tuned in, AJ was, tuned into channels that I didn't know existed. It's like, if you turn on a a walkie-talkie or radio or something like that, and an old one especially, and you just start playing with the dial, you hear all these weird tones and frequencies, especially on like a shortwave radio, that you're like, what is that? And, you know, somebody who knows, an engineer who knows what they're talking about is like, oh, that's interference from digital cell phones. Oh, this is an airplane control tower a few miles away. Things that you don't even know exist because you don't have the equipment. Well, we were developing that equipment, and what we found through going out every night, maybe probably six nights a week for years in a row, and applying this stuff and talking about it was there's about a 90% overlap between 
things that you need to do to be dominant and or well-liked in a social situation. Those are two different things, by the way. And to be somebody of influence or to create relationships or to make friends, these are all, these skill sets all overlap. So you won't be a great business networker unless you can get people to like and trust you. Coincidentally, the exact same things that make for somebody who's charismatic, popular, attractive, fill in your adjective of choice here. So the overlap was, was unmistakable. And that's when we started talking about this a lot and people started to notice our results and they would follow us around and they would buy us drinks and they would pay us for consulting. And the overwhelming response was, you guys need to write a book. But AJ was a cancer biologist and I was studying for the New York bar exam. So neither of us were about to write a book. And that's when AJ said, Hey, look, this new thing called podcasting. Remember this is 2006. It just came out. You can look, we can record our conversations and upload them to the internet and people can download them. And I thought, brilliant, mm-hmm. let's do it. And that's how the art of charm was born. And that's what we've been doing for eight and a half years. How do you guys divide your, uh, who does what in the business? It, it's funny. Cause it kind of fell, it, those roles kind of, we fell into, mm-hmm. right? I originally started doing the show with him all the time and he would edit it and upload it. And then, he ran out of time and I started editing it and uploading it. And then, you know, he would manage some of the numbers and stuff like that since I was doing the editing and it sort of took off from there. And, you know, we, when we started running programs, we had the sales team. And when we moved from New York to Los Angeles, we lost that sales team. And so I learned sales because, you know, he was busy with other things and it didn't seem to be his strong suit. So once he learned, uh, once I learned sales, um, when we had accounting or anything like that, it fell in his wheelhouse and then management stuff fell in his wheelhouse. Whereas I was doing the coaching and now he does the coaching and the, the financial management, the CEO type duties. And I do all of the content production and creation. And so it kind of evolved over time along with our strengths. It wasn't like, okay, I want to do content creation. You should do manage the money and he, or and vice versa. He didn't say, I need to manage the money because I got trust issues. You do this. It was just something like, who's going to step up to the plate and learn this skill? And we kind of just switched off. He really didn't want to do sales. I, and, you know, I really didn't want to deal with the minutia. And so now, of course, he manages people who handle the minutia. And I manage people who do all of the things other than talking into a microphone. So it's it's grown quite a bit. But back then, we did everything like most entrepreneurs do. Like everybody does. Well, let me take another break. Great to have the good folks from Liberty Tax on board all business. Liberty is the fastest growing retail tax preparation firm ever with over 4,000 offices across North America. It's a great seasonal franchise opportunity as well. So if you're looking to get into business or add a service to your business or just need great tax prep services, don't forget the guys that are standing out and waving. That's Liberty Tax. Let me ask you about life coaching because it seems to be, you know, so much bigger than it used to be decades ago. And I, you know, I've been around, I'm an old dog, so I've been around and I remember, you know, some of the original life coaches and the motivators. And it seems to be, we've got a real huge resurgence and a lot more people more open to having these types of coaches or whether it be on the relationship side or, you know, just, just on all types of skills. Are you seeing that to be a, a bigger need? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe it's a bigger need. I also think it's a Man, I'm going to take so much flack for this, but who cares? <laughs> I think it's an easy scam for a lot of people to run yep. to be a life coach and say, "Look, I've got it all figured out," exactly. and I just think and, it's, and never have done it and never have done it. Yeah, quite frankly, yeah. I mean, I, I'd I'd like to see the proof 
you know, whereas I can say, look, I develop relationships. People can't go, well, is it true? I mean, look at the show roster. Look at the success of the program. Yeah, well, you, the you got some, know. by the way, I got to say that, Jordan, you got some impressive numbers. I mean, 2 million downloads, 191 countries. I went through and I was writing all these things down as I was looking. It just, I mean, it's freaking impressive. Um, whether, whether you're, and you're a young guy. Um, I'm an old guy. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you know, I've got right. television shows. And this is, those are impressive numbers. Extremely impressive. Well, yeah. I thank you for thank you for saying so, and and I appreciate it. And, and frankly, you know, getting even getting the introduction to you through uh, the people that made that was kind of like okay, well, the stuff that we're teaching works. Whereas I know a lot of business coaches that don't have what uh, what Professor Cal Newport of MIT would call the the career capital to make it happen. I right. mean, sure, you want to teach me lifestyle design and how to live a nomadic life of freedom and enjoyment. That's great. Oh, you live with your parents in the garage in Idaho. Why would I listen to you? Oh, wait a minute. You made a YouTube video of you traveling, except you're just traveling. You don't live abroad. You've never yeah. done this. Like, you're on the Greyhound you know, bus. You're on the bus. You know? Yeah, you're on the bus. And, and, it's, and it's this fake it till you make it mindset. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally cool with that in a way, right? I'm cool with fake it till you make it in that. make it. If you've got to. You make right, it. but eventually you've got to make it, and you additionally you can't tell people that you have made it if you're still faking it, right? If you're mm -hmm. if you haven't done it yet, and you're if you want to film, for example, your experiment of becoming a digital nomad who makes money online and lives abroad, if you want to film that, document it, put it up, and then eventually start consulting, that's great. But if you say I will teach you how to do this, and you have no friggin' clue how to do it, you're just a con man. That's it. Yeah. Does that get does it get back a little bit to what you were saying before in terms of just, you know, that 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 honesty and authenticity? Because, you know, I get that a lot as well. A lot of people say, Jeff, what I like about you is you just you say it. You say the things I'm thinking in my head because they just I just bored them out. You know, most of the time, even on television, I get bleeped on my own show for saying the things I shouldn't have probably have said. But I'm saying them because one, I can. And two, because the guy across from me is an idiot. I mean, don't, don't you think that, that that's the core? I mean, that has to be the core of knowing who you are and bringing that out in order to be that successful networker or marketer or the person who's, you know, given the charm? Um, can you clarify that question? I'm not sure I well, totally understood I, that. I think, I, think you have to have, I think you have to truly be authentic to, to deliver it. And if you're not authentic, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's the real key for it. Yeah, there's there's definitely that's that's one of the core truths. A lot of people will go, you know, I can't believe you said this on your show, and and I'll be like, look, I I don't have to have perfect opinions. I just have to have opinions, and I'm always open to feedback, and I'm always open to listening to people who have opposing viewpoints on the show. I'm open to corrections. I'm open to all of that stuff. And and frankly, though, I think that one of the reasons the show is popular is because of the authenticity of people saying. Jordan, you know, you're this entrepreneur and you've made all this, you know, what's the key to your success? And I don't say, well, John, follow your passion. I don't say stuff like that because I say, look, there's a large part of what's happened in my life that comes down to luck. There's a large part that comes down to work ethic. There's a large part that comes down to being in the right place at the right time in terms of podcasting. There's a certain amount of inborn talent that comes with being able to present. There's a certain amount of taking your licks and getting up again with being a terrible talk show host in the beginning eight years ago and getting to where we are now. There's a lot of different factors and pretty much none of them is follow your passion, right? So yep. 
that's not that's something that I will say because and it comes across as totally unsexy. A lot of people don't like it. I don't get as many retweets or whatever because of it. Because people, frankly, would rather hear someone say, "Hey, I'm going to teach you how to be awesome." Boom, superpowers. You know, hashtag this. And I'm like, I don't do that because I'm not selling inspiration. Inspiration is really cheap. Everybody can get you pumped up for the 30 minutes that you're rambling into a microphone. I'm not here for that. If you need, and I, and I say this all the time in online forums and when I'm teaching clients, if you are, if your question is how do you stay motivated or how do you get up in the morning? I'm not the coach for you. You know, I, motivation is not something I'm lacking. It's not something I know how to create in other people. Um, I, you know, if, if you're doing things that are sapping existing motivation, that's one thing, but if you're just not motivated to do anything, you have no interest, like I can't help you. And a lot of these motivational quote unquote life coaches, like you brought up their whole currency is I'm going to get you fired up to make it work. I'm going to get you stoked on life. And I'm like, look, that's great. If you want to be somebody who's high on life, but I want you to build a real business. I don't need you to be high on life. You're going to have a lot of ups and downs. There's going to be days that you want to work at the post office instead of doing what you need to do. And that's totally normal. Yeah. And that's the unsexy world of business. It is. Hey, I always go out to fans and ask them what they'd like to hear from you. And I got two great questions. Uh, the first one comes from Curtis Bain um, from Facebook. And this goes back to some background. And, and when I read about it, it was very interesting. You've been kidnapped two times in your life. And so the question, yeah. So the question was, how did you get kidnapped? And this is coming from Curtis. And how did you get out of it? And what did you learn from those experiences? Apply to your speaking and coaching today. I thought those were good questions. Yeah, not bad. Um, I, the kidnapping stories are super long, but the super nutshell version of how once I was 20 years old and I was in Mexico City working for a nonprofit, and they were supposed to find me housing and they didn't. So one of the housing units they had, eventually found me was in this thing. It's like a barrio, mm -hmm. not a shanty town or whatever, but a, a, a really kind of a neighborhood where people who have any money at all do not live. And I was living on the roof of this house made out of cinder block. And I got in a taxi that turned out to not be a taxi. And the dude drove off with me. And, you know, this is in the day before cell phones. So he couldn't call anybody when I started putting up a big stink and we had a physical altercation uh, upon which, you know, I, he was probably 50 something. I was 20 something and I was super into like protein shakes and weightlifting. So he, you know, he did not come out on the top in that one. And I got away. And the second time was I had a, uh, a scholarship from, uh, ACTR excels, which is like a department of defense offshoot sort of Fulbright ish type deal, um, in Serbia. And, mm -hmm. You know, when when you are over there and that's who's signing your paychecks, you are on state security radar. And I got on their radar and they caught up with me at one point because I wasn't living where I said I was living. You have to register with the police in social, many socialist countries because right. they want to track where you live. And I just said, to hell with that, America or whatever, uh, at age 24, 25. And they showed up and I wasn't there and I didn't have a room there and I didn't have luggage there. And they said, oh, you're, here's a warrant for you because you're missing, you're, you know, you're a foreign agent that did not register. And if you've ever seen bridge of spies, that's the charge where they hold the, so the sure. German guy or right. the, yep. the uh, Russian guy. And so they were like, you failed to register as a foreign agent. And I was like, the hell are you talking about? I'm an English teacher. 
And uh, they didn't care about that. So they took me into custody, except for custody with the secret police and the state security officers in Serbia is the basement of an abandoned building, not a place where you get to call a lawyer and make phone calls and check your email. So that turned out kind of weird. That was in a ski that uh, long story short, I ended up getting away from that using a lot of the same skills that we teach at the art of charm applied in a very different way, build rapport, humanize, develop a connection, distract them from their particular goal at that time, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and get the hell out of there the second you get a chance. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and then I think with the Mexico one, I'd think I'd be prepared. I mean, you were in good shape. You knew, you assessed it. You figured out what you had to do, and you have to do whatever you have to do to get out of that, which is... I think yeah, and, but frankly, though, the Mexico thing was super avoidable. And the, and the, the sort of funny part of the story that, that where everybody goes... See, I don't want to scare people away from, like, Mexico travel. I was so dumb. All right, I'm living in this area. I'm the only white guy for miles. I live in this rundown sort of barrio-ish town. I get into a taxi, which are shouldn't have even been there. And the, I'm dressed in, like, Banana Republic chinos and a button-down shirt because I'm going to meet my friend. I've got, like, fake-dyed blonde hair because I'm a punk. I'm 20. Yeah. And... You know, I show up and the guy goes, where to? And I don't think he was like, I'm going to kidnap this guy. I think it just came about as, a, as an inspiration because I got in the car and I said, okay, first thing I need to do is go to an ATM because I'm out of cash. And he's like, sure, no problem. I mean, you couldn't have, I couldn't have painted a bigger target on me. Hi, I'm a dumb young gringo. Yeah, I don't mean to be laughing. I don't mean to be laughing. But yeah, yeah it's like, uh, it's like getting in a cab, you know, in New York City or New Orleans and saying, yes, it's my first time to the city. Just uh, take my money. You know, same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, how much is it? You don't have a meter? Sure. Just open my wallet and take what you need. I mean, I could not have been dumber in retrospect. And, you know, for all the nightmares I had about being chopped up into little pieces and being left in a cinder block basement in Mexico City, what was probably going to happen was some big muscle guy or two was going to get in the backseat of that car with me. They were going to drive me to 15 banks before my card gave out, and then they were going to drop me off downtown and leave. Yeah. That's most likely what was going to happen. I wouldn't say you should bank on that if you ever kidnapped Bill. Um, and frankly, what I learned from that experience, aside from not being that dumb in the first place, is to use services from your hotel, use things like Uber wherever wherever possible because the drivers are vetted and frankly there's a record of what's going on. And, and last but not least, uh, never go to the secondary location. And I know we're diverging tremendously from the business angle of this podcast. Oh, this is great stuff. Still good stuff. The second the secondary location is the proverbial place where no one can hear you scream. And the reason that this is important is because in the initial situation where someone says, get in the car, that's where you make your stand because that's the most fragile part of any abduction or kidnapping operation. And I say this with some authority because I can't even tell you how many experts and classes I've gone to about not getting kidnapped because the third time is the charm is not an, uh, not a cliche I want used when it comes to my abductions my <laughs> over my lifetime. Um, and that's where you make your stand right in the beginning, because if you get in the car, now you're in their vehicle, you're moving. And if you get to their location, it's, unless they really don't know what they're doing, it's remote. You're chained up. Nobody, nobody around you is friendly. Nobody can hear you. There's reinforcements there for them. There's nothing in your favor. The situation only goes downhill. So the second someone says, get in the car or I'm going to stab you, you run, even if it means you get stabbed, because chances are they're going to bounce. Yeah. because that's the most fragile part. So I learned that after the fact, because I had to make a stand in the car after 
fighting what in my mind was just rationalizations, right? Because what you do is this. What happens in your brain when you're in a situation like that is the following. You say, um, it's yourself. You go, I'm not, this isn't really, okay, maybe we're taking a different route because of traffic. No, you know, okay, he's not going, he's not listening to me. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Hey, sir, can you please? Okay, no, no, we're not. Uh, why are we going away from the city? Oh, maybe he's got another way to get there that's not blocked by now. Okay, wait a minute. I'm rationalizing what's happening in my gut. I know what's happening. I'm getting friggin' kidnapped. The sooner I face the reality of that situation and stop telling myself it's all going to be okay, like a lot of dead people probably have, the, the more likely it is I'm going to survive this. So I said, look, don't stop the, you know, let me out here. I'll get out. I'll pay you. And he goes, no. And I, and then I said, don't get out of the car. When he finally stopped in, in front of what appeared to be our destination, he said, okay, calm down, calm down. I'm just going to ask directions. And I said, don't get out of the car. And I put my arm between him and the door and he made a fast one for the door. I caught him and he ended up, uh, you know, asphyxiating. And so the, the, the thing that I learned there was, wow, if I just, you know, as soon as he made that wrong turn, as soon as I started getting suspicious, 2020 hindsight, I could have probably just gotten out at a red light. But at at the point where I finally mustered up the courage to resist, there we, there were no more traffic lights. We were in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it, it was a lot harder. And at that point, he knew that if I got out of the car, I had nowhere to go. You know, right? that's, a, that's Whereas, a great analogy for a lot of things, even relationships. The second you start to see it taking a wrong turn, that's when you start speaking up. That's when you should start talking about it, even in a relationship. Yep. I mean, I think it's a great analogy for that as well. Let me let me ask you another question. Michael Burt is a great – he's got his own podcast, and he's a good fan, and he's got a great radio show down in Tennessee, and he, he's Coach Michael Burt, and he's a coach, and he literally is a coach, and I just love to listen to him. But he asked, what variables uh, do you think – factor into the massive success of your podcast. Why do you think, I mean, you're, you're truly, you guys truly have one of the highest, you know, listen podcast in the world. Why, why do you think that? Uh, well, part of it was getting in early, but I don't mean to sell myself too short there. One of the, one of the other reasons that the show is popular is I've got a lot of practice under my belt for presenting the information in a way that the audience wants to have it. And, Frankly, I do a lot of thinking for my audience. I do a lot of preparation for my guests. And I also try to add in a unique blend of entertainment in that I'm trying to make the conversation flow in a certain way that, you know, these things come through practice. And last but not least, I hustled so hard. And I know it's an overused buzzword, but forgive me. I've hustled so hard in every area possible, making sure people know about the show, making sure I get great guests on the show, uh, making sure that I go on other people's shows and get a chance to talk about it. Like we're doing now. I mean, we're friends, so yep. no, brainer, no, no, it's just, it's just true. A few, you know, a few years ago, I, I was going on like every show that I could. And I was like, yeah. can I be on your show? And, you know, promoting like that and releasing multiple times per week for years on end and making sure production quality is high and, constantly learning about what needs to be done and asking people for feedback, listening to the audience. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it that a lot of people don't want to do. And I talk to other podcasters and they're like, they've got different stances like, Oh, I'm doing it this way because so-and-so who's making money said to do it this way. All right. Well, okay. Now your show sounds like someone else. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, I have a lot of folks. I was at a meeting here recently with a bunch of people that want to be celebrities, so to speak, and they, they want their own television show. And I said, you know, the key thing for most of you is you, most of you won't do the things I've had to do to get to where I'm at. 
And I was just, I said, yeah. I'm, I'm being honest with you. You won't do it. You won't do the hard work. You want, you want the fame and the fortune, but you got to pick one and you really won't do the work. And so anyway, Hey, let me ask you, I got to jump in. We're almost out of time, but I want to do the rapid fire because I always love this because we get a sense for who you are because of where you went to school. So let me ask you the first one. Where was the university of Michigan's first football game played? Oh, I have no idea. It was in Chicago in 1879. It was a decade after the first ever college football game. U of M played its first football game against Racine College of Wisconsin at Chicago's White Stockings Park. It was a neutral site that they agreed on by, by the two officials. I thought that was interesting. How about who, 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 which, yeah, which U.S. president played football at Michigan? Is it Gerald Ford? That's right. A ding, you get, a, you get one right there. Okay. What was, wow. Yeah, this is a legal question. What is the name of classification of crime which is less serious than a felony? You mean a misdemeanor? That's it. That's right. There's two. There's two for yeah. you. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. You're doing better than a lot of other people that have done in the, in the rapid fire. Which Now, you also studied in, in Germany, right? So I'm asking you to this one. Yeah. All right. Which state in Germany is Munich located in? Oh, Bavaria. Yeah, that's that's uh, very good. That's three. Okay, true or false? The traditional Oktoberfest started as a harvest celebration. I would imagine that's true. That's false. It was actually a wedding. Oh, celebration. Really? It was a wedding celebration between some prince or king or something. So, and then here's the bonus question: What popular snack cost more money per ounce than filet mignon? What popular snack, snack. costs yeah, more? Yeah, for us? yeah, yeah. Just, just, just. a truffle something. No, probably? It, I don't it's know. Movie popcorn. Movie popcorn. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. According to the University of California professor Richard McKenzie, movie popcorn is is three times as expensive per ounce than filet mignon. Isn't that something? I know. Unbelievable. I'm trying to do that in my head, and I realize popcorn is largely made up of air, so that's part of the like trickery here. But even so, a huge bucket of popcorn. Is pro- I mean, how much does that cost? I guess I just don't get by popcorn. Ounce, gotta, don't, yeah, don't forget, but it's by ounce, remember? Per ounce, per ounce. So when you think about a right. you know a 16-ounce filet or 8-ounce eight, 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 eight filet versus 8 ounces of popcorn, that's a lot. Wow. All right. Hey, yeah. t- I want to give you a chance for a shameless plug because you've been so great to come on here and talk to me and uh, just some great information and lots of good lessons learned. What, what's a, Give me a shameless plug. Hey, uh, sure. So if you're listening to this podcast, which 100% of you right now are, you should also listen to the <laughs> Art of Charm podcast because, hey, listen, I'm not always uh, going to yell into the microphone and talk this quickly, but I talk to a lot of interesting people, yourself included, and I've got over 500 shows up there. I think a lot of people might be interested in it from business to how to avoid being kidnapped to uh, body language and vocal formality and, and all those different topics. So I think a lot of people might uh, in your demographic might really be into it as well. Yeah. You know, this was fascinating. It's rare that I say this, but I think we, we got to get you to come back because it was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm totally up for it. We'll Thank do you it. so much. All right, my my friend, good to talk to you and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Likewise. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world, Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, at the end of every single show, I like to talk about what did I learn, and there were a lot of things. I really enjoyed the stories that he talked about because I thought that was really cool. The one thing I thought was a real good takeaway was not keeping score. I think good networkers, good people who are very authentic, really want to help other people. 
And not that they're keeping score. I think sometimes they watch for that, but a little bit about if I help you, I know it comes back. And I have always found that in my relationships. I'm always looking to help other people. And by helping other people, eventually it always comes back. And that relationship lever has been able to been pulled many, many times. And I thought that was pretty good. And so, and I, I like the other phrase that he used, inspiration is cheap. And so that means perspiration is hard, but it's worth it, and you're worth it. And thanks so much for tuning in today on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlitt. Don't forget to tell your friends, because it's without listeners, I don't exist. So listen up and get others to listen with you as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. of what's happening in the business world. Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.